Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30, Sunday morning, and, of course, time for the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome back Millie Ross from ABC Gardening Australia. Oh, Millie Millie. Ross from Millie Ross, Pam. Come on, that's right. (laughs) You're definitely Millie in your own right. Yeah, absolutely. How are you going, Pam? It's um, been a lovely little bit of soaking rain. For a couple of days. I mean, I wouldn't say rain. No, we did. Oh, look, let's say it was rain. I didn't check the gauge. But, um, yeah, certainly a ripper weekend to really get final plantings done and so well, a lot of seeds. It's starting to get dry. Yeah. So that rain's actually been very welcome. Yeah, I realised, you know, I just because I've been sort of in between gardens, I haven't really been doing my normal planting routine that I would, would do. And then, you know, I sort of panicked and, and, and thought oh, I've missed all, all of my boats. Um, but, no, a really, really good time if you haven't got your carrots and some of your root crops in, I'd have have a go, yep. you know, your last sort of chance, I think, to do a decent sowing of those sorts of things. And, um, yeah, it certainly feels feels good, you know, regardless to get that sort of long, longer sort of sort of drizzly rain, I guess. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have to say a big thank you to you. I've got my wasabi greens up and running. Ah, good plant, hey? Yes, great plant. Oh, it's, it is. And it is um, it is so typically wasabi without the, the afterburn. It's, exactly. Um, no, it's I wonderful. think it should be on every, on every table in winter. To, you know, yep. it'll be interesting to see how how well it goes with the heat. Um, certainly, I've only grown it sort of when I do those mustards okay. um, through the cooler months. So yep. yeah, I'll be interested to hear how yeah. long you get out well, of it. Well, at the moment, you know, it's all looking fine, but we we haven't had much heat in the last yeah. little while. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. You probably yeah. I mean, they're fast growers, aren't they? All mm. those mustards. So you just you know keep keep them well fed and and um, and keep picking, I guess, and you'll get a good little crop. Fantastic. Excellent. To throw into I know the that salad. was it. Now I've got to, I might f- find the seed supplier because someone will ring up and go what. Who provides those seeds? <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a great. Uh, we have to. I know. I'm just going to be quiet so you can introduce our other guests, and then we can chat about some things. <laughs> okay. We have to say a very good morning to Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill. Good morning, Jeremy. Good morning, Pam. Good morning, listeners. Uh, and I bet you're busy because are you madly planning some things to happen in the garden over the summer? Oh well, all sorts happening, and uh, just the garden itself, I guess. It's uh, yeah, curious season. Now we we did have some rain. We we had a half an inch or so. And so it's just uh, we can relax and enjoy the next few days and uh, but uh, yeah, I'm wondering what on earth happened to spring. And yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, yes, you definitely don't want to talk about the weather nowadays. But uh, yes, we went from snow in the air uh, a few days into early September into summer temperatures within four days. I think yes. it was, and and um, um, the, the spring just telescoped. We were running, the garden was running two or three weeks behind schedule, um, say about 10 days into September, and two or three weeks ahead of schedule by the end of October. Right. It's just incredible. Yeah. Um, but uh, all the same, uh, that sort of spring suits us. I mean, it's an awful thing to say because it doesn't suit anyone else, but uh, um, the, um, everything just went whoosh. It was, it was just very, very dramatic, um, superb flowering. Um, where we've had a Japanese silver bell, for instance, um, flowering better than I've ever seen it. Okay. An old, old one, huge old um, Styrix japonica. 
And that's just typical of the entire garden. Mm. Um, where we go from here, heaven knows. <laughs> Enjoy it day by day. <laughs> Absolutely, because I suspect it's going to get a lot warmer. Mm. I suspect, yeah. Yep. Mm. Yep. Oh, well. Oh, well. Yeah, so Shakespeare in the Garden happening again this yes, year? Yes, Shakespeare, Midsummer Night's Dream. Yes, oh, no, no, no. oh, that's <laughs> a classic one for so the fun. <laughs> well, it kind of suits us because we've got a piece by Ian Ma celebrating Midsummer Night's Dream at the bottom of the garden. So, um, And we had a performance by Oz Act of, of that uh, play. I'm trying to think when, about six, seven years ago now. Mm. So they, they've sort of gone back to giving it another go. So. <laughs> And we started selling tickets um, a few weeks back, and um, so it's all on the website, and everyone's welcome to leap in. And good. And uh, but the first weekend of January, so uh, what is that? The first second of of uh, January, I think, Friday and Saturday. Um, but just check the website, and and there presumably it is. that'll be Twilight performances again. A Twilight performance, yeah. Yep. So um, we have Ozak um, coming on. Um, round about uh, for those who have not been, that we, we uh, Ozact are a, well, they're, they're a Ballarat-based uh, group, really. So the country-based um, um, on-plane-air Shakespeare group, and they perform at various botanic gardens, especially so Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong. Um, they, they start off years ago putting on. Well, they specialised in the, the Tempest at Lockhart Gorge, and that was oh, wow. great wow. fun. Uh, they, um, now, I never saw one of those performances, and unfortunately they can't do them anymore for various problems with Erosion of the beach or something <laughs> like yeah, that. I, I, I don't want to know, but, but, but uh, when they were happening, they were great fun. They, people would come along with their picnics and sit on the beach, and, and halfway through the picnic... Um, the um, Ozak would arrive and and would just walk into the middle of the picnickers and put it on the tempest right and in, in Lockhart Gorge itself, so an absolutely ideal um, surroundings for that sort of thing. Um, nowadays, well, as I said, they, they're travelling around Victoria. They, they uh, put on shows and they uh, well, they, there's about ten or twelve of them all together. But we're been right in the middle of the schedule for the last. What eight ten years I think, mm. and um, Midsummer's Night's Dream, first and second of January. So, okay, yeah, I I have I have I've, I've probably mentioned this uh, before on air, but uh, as a as a teenager, I went along to Midsummer Night's Dream that was being performed in uh, the Botanic Gardens in Melbourne. And halfway through the performance, dear old Puck got lost. <laughs> and they were, all the cast were yelling out, Puck, where are you? Hello, Puck. Puck was in the lake. Puck was in the lake, I think, but Puck disappeared. So. <laughs> it's so hard with drama too. I mean, everyone just thinks it must be part of the show. You yeah, know? We exactly. Laughing about friends of mine were in, or uh, some people I know were doing a performance because Way Out West Festival's on uh, in the west of Melbourne this, this weekend. Um, they were doing a performance in a perspex he's built this perspex sort of staging area it's like a, a box in the uh in in the mall there and and he was quite worried about them we went to another performance and because he was like i've got to get back there and make sure there's air getting in there because his wife and another performer he said the people will just think it's part of the performance if they start to cook in there and fall down it's, a, it's hard to convince people that this isn't sh- this shouldn't be happening please help please help oh dear yeah the joys of, of live performances <laughs> but that should be excellent what about um any other musical events during summer? 
Well, we, we haven't got anything on the schedule at the okay. moment, but we're, we're sort of, yeah, um, wait and see. Okay. Uh, and, um, Bit of rock and roll, of, I think, uh, Jeremy. Well, uh, well, lots of things with diggers <laughs> and, uh, and uh, just concentrating on the garden at the moment. Fair so we're, we're having a lot of fun with it. And, uh, you know, from my point of view, I suppose, uh, this is what... Uh, about fifteen months into the relationship with diggers, so uh, previous to that, yeah, well, previous to that, it was well, it's a bit more than that actually now I think, but uh, mm. previous to that, it was, I was behind the counter for over twenty years, yeah. so I was still sort of relaxing, enjoying getting out more into time. the garden, and so that's what we've been doing. And yep. um, over the winter, we've, we've um, tackled two or three jobs, which. I've been on the list of things to do for a little while, and our parterres, for instance, we um, the, the main box parterres in the middle of the main terrace were chopped back to Billio back in August, and that was quite an enterprise. Right. So we took them, um, um, took the plants back by about three quarters. Mm. And was that um, just you know over time that you sort of get to the point you know that you you're not going to have that same you know you're not getting that. G- Ability to keep them controlled because you into sort of clustered, it's, branched. You keep pruning and pruning and pruning, but you well, end up with that sort a, of hard. Well, it's a really interesting thing, actually. I mean, it, and then we go back to the weather, but it, uh, but uh, we can um, put the blame on the the wet summers we had back um, post two thousand and nine. So two thousand and ten was quite a nice summer, but two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve were both really wet summers. Mm. And uh, things like um, box hedges were growing continuously mm. uh, f- straight through summer, um, and um, and so they they ended up with a lot of loose floppy growth uh, in the top half of the these what were meant to be very formal hedges. <laughs> and uh, over the next two three years, we were desperately trying different systems to control this, take them back, or or. Uh, or just turn them into something less formal, which was what we were trying over the last season or two. Okay. Eventually, we just gave up. No, take them back. <laughs> <laughs> and um, um, of course, as soon as you do that, uh, everyone just looks in horror at the, these skeletons, yeah. these oh, little fun. stumpy skeletons. Yeah, and, stir them right up. <laughs> and and uh, it was, and, uh, and virtually the first person who appeared um, um, after we chopped them back. Um, Said, oh, I had one of those hedges, and I did that, and they all died. Oh, <laughs> that's all you need. <laughs> now, I've had experience chopping box back before. I mean, we um, we had some huge variegated box which were tucked in amongst some beech trees, uh, up about a metre and a half high. Mm. And um, anyway, we we had to remove them to create a parking spot. And so we, uh, in that case, we dug them up with virtually no root system whatsoever and potted mm. them. And um, but they ended up with um, just stems to about a meter high, no foliage. And we sat them in pots for about two years, and they gradually recovered over that period, about two two and a half years. But virtually no root system left. So that that was uh, about the most traumatic thing you could do any to any plant, I, I, I suspect. Um, but in this case, of course, we were simply cutting back. And um, the intriguing thing is every single plant has bounced back except for one. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. <laughs> one in one corner, which I'm, I'm really aggrieved about. 
Um, but um, There has to be another factor. <laughs> well, I kind of suspect it, it's right against one of our archways, and I think what hap- uh, what's happened is that there was a, a fairly substantial footing put in, and so ah. this plant's sitting on top of a very shallow um, root run on top mm. of a, a lump of concrete. Mm. So it's as simple as that. Mm. So it's not quite dead. Yeah, there's never. There's sometimes there's just no real answer, is there? No. It's quite difficult when you're talking to customers or or people you're trying to problem solve, and you say, "Look, all well, these are all the things it could be." Yeah. But in the end, I can't say. It just uh, just. No, I was actually running respond. a workshop on hedging on Topri um, a few days back, and just walking around and looking at all the problems. Now, I can mm. find problems everywhere. Mm. In fact, there's another hedge which we've. Uh, the same thing happened. It was a formal hedge uh, box again, s- straight Buxus sempervirens. Um, the plants were originally uh, about um, about forty five centimetres high, uh, about um, about thirty centimetres across, and it was a nice formal hedge. And those two wet summers, they kind of doubled in size and became very floppy. And in that case, we. Um, uh, we, we turned it into a kind of Jacques Wirtz uh, hedge, if uh, if you know his work, um, uh, a very organic um, tortoise shell effect, I suppose. And as the plants started flopping, we actually went with the um, with, 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 the the, with the, yeah with yeah. the habit with with that particular section of the hedge and just created free free flowing forms out of this hedge. Mm. Um, and uh, I, um, I think Jeff Barnes was—he was, um, he was um, giving it a go over about eighteen months or so, and it gradually formed a, a really interesting character. Now that one we decided to leave because it's working pretty well. It's still kind of opening up here and there. It mm. still has that loose growth in it, and once you've got loose growth in a hedge, it's—it's—it's. It's, it's, yeah, there's not much you can do. Mm. I mean, one of the principles of hedges, if you—if you. If you Growing a lot of plants is that uh, you need a, a central leader from the from the ground right up to the top of the hedge, and really all the laterals com- should be coming away from a central leader. Mm, now it? nurseries are really to blame for promoting the idea that no, you don't do that. What you do is plant a fastidia plant. Now those things are just diabolical, and there's so many examples I can go through just about, including box. There's right. uh, there's a box. Um, released a few years ago called yeah. Graham Blandy, uh, which wants to grow metres high, and it's very upright. But you, you end up with a plant which, okay, grows, what, one and a half metres, or you can grow to two metres quite easily, but it, but it's, um, it's actually forking at ground level, so you end up with half a dozen litres with mm. Each, mm. Um, each plant, and it gets up to full height, and then you have a summer with a bit of wind and a bit of rain, or you have a winter, in our case, with a little bit of snow, even better, <laughs> and the whole hedge just falls open yes. from from the top right down to the bottom, yes. and then I challenge anyone to get it back again. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, it's like that I've found with some of those capressus um, sempervirens, yep. you know, the yep. really upright um, yep. conifers. I had a garden once where... You know, it got to the point where they actually had to be tied. Yes. And and once you do, it's a slippery slope. Once you've done it, because the second you start to try and take out these side branches, their their job supporting the branches internally. You think, oh yeah, that looks great, and you walk away, and then the next ones sort of fall out, and then the next ones fall out, and um, in the end, we actually had to tie it 
and clip to sort of a a rounded, um, which I just, I couldn't believe that I had to do that as a gardener, you know, that we actually had to physically contain it because it, it just started to fall to pieces. Oh, there are so many examples. I mean, and, and unfortunately, nurseries are to blame for this. I was round at a that's Community. why I shop on the Footscray footpath, which uh, <laughs> we're talking about. Because the nurse room and in you just wanted to whack me with a well, stick when I walked in with my bag full of well, plants. Well, well it's so <laughs> counterintuitive. You think, okay, yeah. I, I want some, a plant which is going to go two metres high and half a metre across, so I'll buy that little one, which is already up half a metre and it's only a few centimetres wide. I mean, it, it's mm. just extrapolate and it's going to be right. No, it's not. Mm. <laughs> I, I was actually around at a camellia growers this spring and looking at one or two new camellias. Uh, uh, um, there's oh, some amazing camellias uh, which are going to be released over the next year or two. And uh, and uh, the, the best camellias for hedges are small leaf. To, mm. You must look at the leaf first. So, you know, good, rich, green, glossy leaf, small. Um, not big leaf camellias because you need seconders to prune them back. Um, whereas the small leaf ones, you can chop the leaves in half and they mm. they don't, don't scar. Yeah, yeah, they don't scar. Whereas the big ones, if you chop the leaf in half, you get a lot of um, scarring. Um, <clears throat> the the leaves um, die back somewhat, and you see that for the next twelve months. Um, but the the uh, the two that were were right at the top of the list to be. Uh, two camellias, the new varieties, right at the top of the list to be released, were very upright growing varieties because they would be so good for screens and hedges. And I was thinking, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> You'll just end up looking at bare trunks, yeah. won't you? <laughs> yeah. And there I say I've actually planted one of these because the foliage was so good. But I've, I've actually made a mental note I'm, that as these plants grow, I'm going to be chopping them back to one litre right to the top of the hedge. Mm. And if you actually walk into Cloud Hill at the moment, you'll see that we've torn apart the um, the garden uh, right next to the restaurant, between the nursery and the restaurant, and um, and uh, we've pulled out a fence which is about to fall over and uh, planted one of these camellias. And beautiful foliage, very upright growth, but it does have this weakness that it's way too upright, mm. and so that we will actually have to train them very, very carefully. If they'd been, a, if they'd had a conventional growth habit, it would actually be a lot easier. Yes. Um, but the foliage was so outstanding. You couldn't help yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I must get on to some community announcements because there are still events taking place uh, during this uh, spring summer time. Um, now, firstly, we have um, an open garden today in Heidelberg. This is part of the Sustainable Gardening Australia Open Gardens and Tours um, uh, emphasis. Now, this is Mim and Paul's garden. It's at 44 mm. Brown Street in Heidelberg. It's opening from 10 o'clock this morning, running through until 3 o'clock. This is a must-see for families as this garden encompasses... All sorts of things. Landscaper and design lecturer couple have designed a garden that is very livable and environmentally sustainable for themselves and their friends as well as the newer additions to their growing family. So they've got bees, chooks, fruit trees, edible ornamentals and, of course, veggies. Now, the cost is an $8 entry. Um, Again, that address is 44 Brown Street in Heidelberg, 10 o'clock through till 3 o'clock this afternoon. Also, today is the second day of the uh, Open Garden in Fitzroy, which is part of Open Gardens Victoria. 
Now, this is uh, a terrace house garden, and it's uh, part. Of, it's owned by um, Anne Atkins, mm. who is the creator of Wonder Wings Fairy Shop. So it's full of surprises. She's transformed a derelict rooming house into a fascinating garden uh, that beckons as soon as you open the front door. Now, the garden is actually reached through the house. It's meant to be a really, really fun garden. I know James had a really long chat to Anne okay. um, a, a few months ago and just said she was really great fun and just created a space that was completely about, you know, enticing you out the back door and yes. a really quirky and fun I, space. I think it's a garden that children would love to be taken to because it's going to be full of fairies, it's, um, I gathered there's even some old ladies who recline on the couch in the front room as you go past. Um, At every garden event I've ever been to, that's how it works. <laughs> <laughs> Where is this, Pat? Um, this is in uh, Fitzroy. The actual oh. address is 45 Napier Street in Fitzroy. And uh, it's open 10 through to 4.30 today. $8 entry, students $5, which, as I say, I'm really pleased to see because... Uh, it gives students, particularly students of horticulture, a chance to go and visit some of these things that, and they can actually afford to get into them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, just an amazing garden. She's designed a metal archway to promote an illusion of width. She's got climbing roses, Chilean jasmine, many other creepers weaving their way up, hanging baskets of ferns and perennials um, and all sorts of other whimsical things hidden there for uh, for you to discover as you enter that garden. So that address again, 45 Napier Street in Fitzroy, 10 through to 4.30 today. Now also on today is a special sale day and mini display of uh, <clears throat> bonsais. Now mm. this the location is Japara Living and Learning Centre. This is at uh, 54 to 58 Durham Road in Kilsyth. Uh, Melway's reference there is 51J5. Uh, Doors open at 10 o'clock and it only runs through to 1 o'clock. So if you're interested in uh, grabbing hold of some great bonsais or bonsai-related items, you'll need to get up there nice and early, I think. They've got bonsai trees, starters and nursery stock, pots, books, stands, tools, um, all sorts of uh, orchid pots in various sizes, so it's a great way to pick up some gar- some uh, bargains there. Now, the Bonsai Club, the, this is the Yarra Valley Bonsai Society, is actually based in Mount Evelyn. It caters for bonsai enthusiasts of all ages, experience and skill levels. And uh, they have two meetings per month, the second Tuesday and the last Saturday, as well as uh, group trips, special workshops and beginner and intermediate bonsai courses throughout the year. So... Uh, Sounds like a really, uh, really active uh, bonsai society. But that uh, special sale today, uh, again, the address is Japara Living and Learning Centre, 54 to 58 Durham, spelled D-U-R-H-A-M, road in Kilsyth, Melways 51J15. Uh, today is also the last day of the Mullum Mullum Festival. This has been running over the last two weekends. And again, there's a very extensive uh, s- uh, series of events today being staged. The best idea, if you want to have a look at what's happening today, is to go to their website, mullumullumfestival.org.au, and entry to each session is simply $2.00. Uh, coin donation. So uh, 
lots of exciting things. There's walks and presentations. Um, uh, there's, there's, for instance, a presentation walk and talk on life of the short-beaked echidna. There's a short walk followed by a talk and moth survey after dark, moths and their caterpillars. Mm. Um, there's a walk and talk, mullum mullum meander. There's solar-powered survivors, reptile conservation in urban bushland reserves, and on it goes. So I do recommend, if you're interested at all, uh, to go to their website and have a look at all that's taking place today. That's mullumullumfestival.org.au. Uh, now, just a couple more I should mention. Uh, firstly, there is an open garden party fundraiser for St Kilda Mums, which is coming up next Saturday, the 28th of November. Um, it's a uh, Brighton cottage garden. It's going to be open to the public from 10.30 through till 5. Entry to the gardens is $7, and all funds raised will go towards St Kilda Mums, who collect and rehome clothing and uh, nursery items for Victorian families in need. So well worth supporting, and you get to see um, a great cottage garden as well. Now, the location is 25 Meek Street, spelt M-E-E-K, Meek Street in Brighton. Uh, as I said, entry is $7 on the door. Children are free. There'll be morning and afternoon Devonshire teas, homemade cakes and sausage sizzle, homemade jams, preserves, chutneys and seedlings also available to buy. And uh, one more I'm, I will quickly mention, uh, but this is further afield. This is coming up uh, Saturday the 5th of December. Friends of Burnley Gardens are running a short course on fitting fruit trees into vertical spaces. Now, it's a summer pruning workshop. It'll be taking place in the Burnley Gardens, and it's led by Chris England of Merrywood Plants. Um, so he's going to be using the demonstration fruit trees in the orchard uh, to show people how to summer prune fruit trees and also how to create fabulous espaliers. Uh, so um, to go to this one... Uh, the actual details, as I said, takes place at Burnley College, which is at 500 Yarra Boulevard in Richmond, Saturday the 5th of December. Uh, the meeting place is in PSL 6. You follow the signs and then out in the field station. 10am through to 1pm. Cost is $55 for members of the Friends Group, $75 for non-members. Bookings are essential. Uh, you can phone 9035 6861, that's 9035 6861, or email a.smith at unimelb.edu.au. All right, well, it's time we invited our listeners to uh, join us. If you have a gardening question this morning or if you'd like to make any comments on anything, do give us a call. We'd love to hear from you. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air. We have uh, Millie Ross in the studio and also Jeremy Francis from Cloud Hill Gardens uh, in the studio with us this morning. So that's 94190155. Or today we have Derek on the outside line. If you'd like to have a chat to Derek, 94198377.
Millie. Well, I was interested. Um, I was just saying, I, I knew we had to get to community announcements, so I had to bite my tongue. But talking about shaping plants, I, I've just come back from New Zealand. I had a 10-day trip to New Zealand. I realised uh, earlier this year I'd never been there, and that was ridiculous And because uh, <laughs> I love plants and I love the natural landscape. So I, um, I, uh, I actually went for the Garden Marlborough Festival, which happens in Blenheim, which is in the you know north of the South Island there. Really great garden festival. Um, so that was my excuse. And uh, I spent three days touring around gardens and, and tacked a few days on either side to, to tour around some natural landscapes. But um, one, of, one of the most interesting things I saw is um, one of the gardens that we visited, and um, they do a whole collection of workshops and, and all sorts of things, um, but a lot of garden tours. And uh, you all sort of clamber on the bus in the morning and people disappear to every every corner of, uh, of the area to look at all these gardens. But uh, we visited this great old um, historic garden called Tamara Lodge, which was originally the original owner or the fellow who had 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 the property had planted a lot of great trees. He'd, he'd been sort of acclimatising, I guess, or playing around with, with what species would work. And so that structure for this big old garden is there. And then this wonderful garden sort of come in underneath it over, over a period of, you know, nearly 100 years. And uh, I'm walking around this fantastic big private garden. It's now a private lodge. You can pay a couple of grand a night to stay there if you like <laughs> <laughs> and just sort of wander around these um, these fantastic gardens. But um, there was this fantastic uh, row of large topiary, like, you know, the size of a rabinium mop top, you know, across the garden. And I was talking to the head gardener and we're chatting away and she sort of gestured and said something about the, the, the acacias. And I sort of glanced over and thought, what acacias, you know? And then, uh, and then when I finally got up to that end of the garden, it turned out that these huge fantastic um, balls on sticks and they, they, they ran down the side of a, a pathway and, and actually if people jump onto Instagram, if they Google my Instagram, The Thrifty Gardener, they'll see a picture of it um, because the, the shadows were so good, but they were actually blackwoods. And I had never seen, I'll show you, look, Jeremy's face is doing a, what? <laughs> I'll show you. But it was just, uh, you know, it just made me think, you know, you see plants again and again and again, and you, you know plants so well, and then you see someone use them in a way you never thought you could. So it was acacia melanoxalan actually done as a large ball on stick topiary. There's probably a particular there's what's the technical name for ball on stick Lollipop? Yeah. <laughs> lollipop, I'm sure I think. that the French called it the lollipop. Yeah, yeah. They're, 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 I'm, I'm, well, yeah, you're saying acacia, and I was thinking, oh, well, yes, Rabinia, pseudo acacia. Yes, no. <laughs> which is the mop top Rabinia. I'm now on my Instagram and, 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 sliding and, my phone across for Jeremy to have a look is, at them. But ah. uh, they were really impressive. And, you know, and it is that sort of, it's that ability to just play with a plant and who knows who did that what happened what was the habit of the plant that made them do that you know all of these things you know who who thought of that but I just thought I mean I thought that in within this particular garden it was such a wonderful effect um in the high sun you know with these great shadows cast down that pathway um but I I was quite taken and another garden we visited that day probably my favorite garden that we we saw which was a really young garden but um created by a, a garden designer he's a kiwi but he's now he's actually just moved to Sydney about a year ago so he'll probably end up doing a bit of work through through Australia but this fellow Ross Palmer who actually designed the garden of his sister it's his sister's house so she, it's her property and and they were a lovely dynamic together and I said is it easier to design uh, you know I sort of thought oh can you get away with a bit more he said no she challenges me more <laughs> you know she'll tell me how it is but he had used um a lot of kiwi native plants mixed in with a lot of ornamental you know just general he had no 
you know, he said, I'm not fussy about plant palette. I, I look at all of these plants and know what they can do. So, you know, for example, he had this amazing mass planting of large astelia, so that beautiful silver yeah. foliage clump, clump, you know, clumping uh, sort of, well, not grass, it's like a lily, but um, mixed in with uh, mutabilis rose and wow. en masse. And it yep. was so beautiful. And then the front of this garden... Um, was the most extraordinary collection of mostly Kiwi native plants. And he'd used, you know, again, with shaping things, he'd used the local karokia, which is this fantastic twiggy, twiny yep. sort of, you know, it's got, got, you know, there's some wonderful prosmas and mullenbeckias that are so sort of twiggy and, you know, I can't even describe, I don't know what the best word to describe them, but they have this fantastic scrambly habit and instead of hedging them, he'd done this fantastic freeform sort of um, pruning of them and some of his little hedges went nowhere, you know. You could walk up and end at a dead end, which I loved, you know, like a real sense of fun in this garden and and it was so lovely because I, I was standing talking to him at some point and, you know, it was at, at times quite a traditional garden audience, I, I expect, and some, some of the women I'd chatted to on another bus were like, they they didn't really like that garden in the way they liked the peonies and the roses yes. sort of garden. I can see peonies and roses anywhere. You know, exactly. I can't necessarily see kiwi plants slammed together with, you know, you don't see that sort of playing with a plant unless you know it really well. Yeah, and, and, and of course, they, they, some of the great gardens that have been made at the present time are picking up on those ideas yes. and, and um, well, Australian native plants and, and actually looking seriously at their growth habits and then playing around with yeah. them. Knowing what you can do. But it was wonderful to see this woman came sort of scrambling back across the lawn with with a little piece of, um, I think it was the karokia. It might have been one of the caprosmas, again, you know, this twisted, wiry thing that he would have clipped into all this form and then put it together with the, I think, the pseudopanax, which has got, you know, adapted to the moa giant bird. So it's got this great (laughs) sawtooth foliage and they just look so great together. But she came scrambling over and said, what is this? And he said, oh, well, it's, um, you know, it's karaokia or whatever it was. And, and she said, oh, what conditions does it like? And he said, well, where do you live? And she told him, oh, I live on this peninsula. He said, well, it grows locally there. You know? <laughs> and, and you could just see because she'd never probably seen it around her all her life, but she'd never seen it clipped into a, you know, into a beautiful wavy form or whatever had been done with it. Suddenly this plant that she's probably seen all her life was, was compelling, you know. She thought, oh, gosh, I need to have it. And, you know, I've never, she was so excited when she sort of scuttled off to uh, think about how she might use it. But, um, yeah, I mean, you can have so much fun with plants. I, I often say to people, Jeremy, just... Just because the label says it grows a metre by a metre doesn't mean it has to in your garden, you know. You, oh, you can absolutely. have fun with just about any plant. Uh, it's, it's one of the astonishing things for Valerie and I when travelling through um, uh, Europe uh, two or three years back. We are doing one of these very fancy, uh, expensive tours and uh, I was supposed to be the expert guide. <laughs> uh, but, uh, Too busy we, looking we, at the gardens. Of course, uh, everywhere in, in uh, from, we were started off in England um, – uh, and then we went to Floriade um, in Holland. Uh, so this was 2012, so what, three years back. And then up through Germany and, and uh, across to um, the Rhone and then down through France and everywhere, of course, hanging baskets um, and lots of mauve and blue. And in every single country we went to, all the way from Cambridge in England to the Arles in the south of France, the, the main plant uh, giving that blue colour was well, Cavolia, an Australian mm. native. Mm. Um, more varieties, more different colours than, than I, I, I was aware of in Australia, that's for sure. Mm. And just used in so many different ways. So it was just extraordinary. 
Now, um, 15, 20 years ago, that colour would have been provided by lobelia. Yes. Mm. But lobelia is mm. really tricky. I mean, you know, <laughs> mis-watering lobelia. Uh, brown once. bundle well, that, of that, Yeah, well, that, that's it for the rest of the season. You know, three months worth of, yeah, three months' <laughs> worth of, a, uh, well, a street. You know, that, look, um, we were actually staying in um, a little village in uh, Kent um, where my wife's family live. And um, there they are, so organised when it comes to these hanging baskets. So Aren't they, they, they beautiful? Oh, they are beautiful. Yes, we went to the little local strip shopping. Um, you can always strip spot shops, a pub, uh, can't one day, you? and then went back the next day, and the, and it turned from a bare street into a street full of colour. Yes. Uh, They're hanging baskets everywhere, mm. and I was, wow, that, that that was pretty amazing. And I was checking them, and of course they are. Um, carefully designed baskets that uh, uh, they, they obviously have some sort of lifting mechanism. They, they are big, yeah. uh, which is a critical thing with a hanging basket, and they sit on these brackets which have been placed up and down the street and which you don't actually notice when there's nothing there. Yeah. Um, but uh, we were just entering the first days of um, um, summer. It was um, late June. And these baskets were placed, and they would be flowering. Well, looking at the the um, plants in them, they'd be flowering for the next three, four months mm-hmm. through until mid-autumn or so. Um, and the whole thing was uh, industrial exercise, I suppose. And again, scavolia uh, everywhere, mm. uh, mixed up with all sorts of other plants uh, to give other colours. So blues, pinks, um, often um, ivy leaf pelargoniums, and a little bit of silver. It's but so well done, isn't whatever. it? Oh, I've yes. often wondered how we could do it in Australian conditions. Yeah, you know, we're oh, so much hotter and drier. I, uh, Can we do it and what plants could we do it with? But I, I love the fact that you can be in London and if you want a beer, if you just look up and scan the perimeter of the road, there'll be a hanging basket full of colour and that'll probably mean that's a pub. Like every pub yeah, in London absolutely. has this cascade of colour out the front. You can, you, know, it's, you can spot it from a mile away. I must say, I, at this point, I have to put my hand up, and I have attended a local um, a meeting of the local business community at Alinda, and suggesting that if anyone can do it, people in Alinda can do it. So, well, the businesses in Alinda can do Absolutely. it. Somehow, it didn't yeah. quite get going, yeah. but I'll, I'll keep trying. I'll keep mm. trying. So yes. maybe it's a, a case of someone designing a really great actual vessel for yeah. it to happen in, you know, something. And, I mean, and using a, and Australian natives yeah. and, and, uh, and, and succulents. very tough plants yeah. and succulents, yeah. I mean, I, I was quite um, amazed with, you know, some of the, some of my favourite, favourite um, plants. You know, I went looking for Pachystegia in Cygnus on the rocks in because someone had said to me, well I went to see a great nursery when I arrived in, in Christchurch called Texture Plants um, a hot tip from Simon Rickard to send me to see his mate Dave who used to be the head gardener at Diggers many many years ago and uh, I said to him we were standing there looking at the the Pakistan during the nursery and I said when, where can I see that and he said on the rocks in Kakura and I went great I'm going to Kakura and you know looking at that plant that I've sort of I've known it's tough and I know it can cope with periods of dryness I know it needs to be well-drained, but watching it growing out of a limestone cliff, you know, you can stand and sort of learn so much about a plant when you look at it in its habitat and think about, you know, maybe that, you know, those sorts of plants, when you look at them in Australian habitats that grow on those cliff faces, grow on the coastal dunes, but still manage to throw out all this colour, put them in a garden context, in a hanging basket where they do it a bit tough, they're probably going to put on a big show, you know. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think it, no, I think I think we could actually make a bit of money out of this one, Jeremy. We should keep it quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a business venture, right? I'm waiting to happen. Yeah. <laughs> okay, if you'd like to join us this morning, do give us a call. The number is nine four one nine zero one double five to speak to Millie or Jeremy on air. Or if you'd like to have a chat to Derek on the outside line, 94198377. We're going first up to Hugh, who's out in the Yarra Valley. Morning, Hugh. Good morning, Victoria. Good morning, Pana. I wish you all a lovely weekend for what's left of it. And I want to talk about my walnut trees. I purchased a couple of walnut trees a few years ago. They ended up in a half-meter pot. They grown to one and a half meter high, two meters, one and a half, two meters, the two of them. And yesterday, uh, as I said, in a 50-centimeter pot, and I've been weeding them, and I found that ground level, there is this uh, cavity in what I think has been the understock. Now, um, it, it alarms me when... Um, there is something wrong with the understock. Um, the cavity is not exactly big, but I feel it could rot further down. So what I did, I scraped it clean on the two walnuts, and it was only on the walnuts, it was not on the chestnuts, etc. It was only on the two walnuts. And I cleaned the wound, if I can call it that way, or the hollow or the cavity, I cleaned that all out, and then I sprayed it with um, um, Steripoon as good as I could, but the Steripoon wouldn't last very long either, I think, and I don't know what to do. Can I fill that cavity up, or should I just leave it open and reduce the the level of the soil so that the cavity is above the soil, or what do I do? Hello? <laughs> well, it's, a, it's, a, it's an interesting one, and, and that, uh, if you sort of look at old books, uh, every few years, uh, the recommendations for this for tackling exactly this problem seem seem to have altered by 180 degrees. And yes, uh, in the old days, uh, people were filling cavities with with um, concrete, with yes. all sorts of things. Um, I myself, uh, I, I think, really um, um, just getting as much health into the plant as possible, so the the plant heals itself is a better way to go. Um, so now I'm wondering, you, you've, you have these trees in tubs. Uh, will, will they stay in tubs forever, uh, or do you intend to well, plant them? I, for for the time being, they will have to stay in the tubs because um, I just have so much work and I haven't got time to plant out. And also, I think it is the wrong time of the year to do it. Well, it depends on how well established the root ball is. You could plant them, but if you if you have a spot to plant them, uh, putting them in the ground will enable them to um, grow faster, I suppose, and 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 uh, and then they're more likely to well, the plant is more likely to heal. Um, so, that, uh, on the other hand, if you want, if if there, if there was a particular reason for keeping at the, in the tub, if, if for instance you were thinking of moving uh, in say two years' time, well, and then you, then you're kind of stuck. But you just have to uh, then maintain a really good fertilizer regime and TLC all the way. 
Um, but I, I think uh, leaving the plant to heal itself is the better way to go. Have you, what, what do you think, Millie? Yeah, look, I mean, I think, you know, steriprune is something and, and sealing wounds is sort of, we don't really do that anymore. I think we realise that the plant, if it's healthy, should be able to heal a wound. I mean, they have mechanisms for doing that yeah. all the time in the wild when a yeah. limb drops off or whatever. So, yeah, I, I would just always just obviously have a, sometimes even cleaning it and stripping it back a little bit. Um, so taking off tissue that's, you know, actually damaged and, and taking it back to fresh, green, clean material it might heal more quickly. But I think you're right, Jeremy, if the tree's in a, in a pot and under stress, then it's much less likely to sort of, you know, grow away and actually just grow through any problems it has. Um, so, yeah, I would I would be inclined to plant it in the ground if you can. Um, but, you know, you, that might be next winter. And I, I just keep it as, you know, reasonably and evenly watered and, and fed as you can through this, this sort of warmer part of the year. Yeah, it's a fairly basic principle, I suspect. I mean, it's uh, pruning branches. It's, mm. it's the same mm. sort of thing. And when you're pruning a branch, a, a fairly substantial branch, you um, you sort of go in as close to the trunk as possible, but you you cut it on an angle so as to to um, end up with as the least possible. Um, um, uh, tissue exposed to the air is, mm. is so that most probably you're cutting it on a 30 degree angle rather mm. than straight down the side of the trunk in mm. which case you end up with a scar which is can be three four times the size of so mm. I've seen that happen with one or two arborists and, and just carelessly sort of whipping the, uh, with a chainsaw, just whipping off a, a branch and think, oh, no, no that, that, yeah. that, that, that's, that's going to take, instead of two, three years to heal, it's going to take 12, 15 years to heal. Um, it's that sort of difference. Mm. Um, and that principle holds true, I think. The, the plant has to heal itself, and, and that's what plants do. Mm. Mm. Yeah, but the, 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 um, my thoughts were... Since it is at soil level, and when you water the the plant, then um, more water will penetrate the 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 understock. Now I've, I've been once to the green shed people, and they have a whole array of of uh, puttings, mm. you know, for putting nail holes and for putting uh, rotten timber. It's, it, it, fascia boards and so on and so forth and there is a product called blob or something like that there's a variety of 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 uh, puttings and i thought if i just fill that up so that the water which i use to water the plant uh, will not enter that wound uh, just mm. blocking it off the only reason that water entering the wound would be a problem is if water sits in the wound. So, like, you know, a hollow is formed in a gum tree where, yep. where you know, where something sits. So that would be the only problem. Otherwise, I, I would I would just actually clean any, you know, any rotted tissue. If there's a little bit of um, decay there, I'd clean that off and, and let the tree sort of heal itself. If it's possible yeah, to... Okay. to, uh, to uh tackle the base of the wound perhaps and to make sure that water will drain drain away that might be a better way to go yeah okay now uh, the, uh, there was some talk here and i only heard the word uh lollipop um, <laughs> I only heard it's a botanical I, term here botanical yeah, <laughs> I, I was at the time talking to the switchboard or whatever and um 
I, I thought you start off buying a Robina, isn't that right? Oh, we were we were talking um, just briefly about a garden that I visited in um, in Blenheim in in, in New Zealand um, that had topiaried uh, acacia melanoxylum blackwoods that were almost the size of of those robinias. So um, that's that's what what the reference to lollipop was, yeah, not well, to the uh, plant itself. Yeah, I, I couldn't quite relate that to you because. The blackwoods I have, um, they have a very sparse sort of crown on, on top of. Yeah, of, they were pretty. They're pretty impressive, Hugh. If you Google the Thrifty Gardener Instagram, you can see a picture of them, and uh, yeah, no one, no one would believed me that um, that it was what oh, it was. So it was you, quite wonderful. I yeah, I believe you, but I can't Google. I only have a telephone and the radio. Uh, you know. Oh well, oh well. You'll have <laughs> well, to just uh, close your eyes and and uh, imagine. But I get a lot of um, blackwood seedlings, and uh, I could try. You know, yeah, you absolutely grow. could. I mean, the juvenile foliage on blackwood is quite different to its adult foliage. Exactly. Um, but uh, yeah, look, they were they were a good. The the, the actual um, crown, which would have been a couple of meters at least um, diameter, um, was was about didn't start till about six foot off the ground. So they were quite substantial. Um, they, you know, really really wonderful effect um, as you came how, down how, the path. Uh, and Millie, how, how how thick was the stem of the trunk? Uh, it wasn't huge, actually, and and one of them, had, a couple of them, had a little bit of a lean, but it probably would have been, I guess, about you know, sort of ten centimeters diameter. They weren't, they weren't really, you know, huge trees, um, but uh, yeah, really Im- impressive, and and you know, just made me think, you know, you can play with really any plant. You can oh, have I a go at doing I, something I got different with it. Blackwood seedlings, I could try. I can. So I let them grow to say two meters, and then you sort of um, clip the top off so it doesn't grow any higher. So it will grow into the horizontal, and then that's how I start. And strip off. the lower leaves. I might even let them get a little bit higher because I think the blackwood probably needs to be a little bit bigger to start really producing its its true foliage. Jeremy's looking. Um, he's having a think actually. Well, I can tell across the room. That's but, struggling uh, here. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think. Uh, is, is, yeah, but it's worth having a play with, I reckon, Hugh. It's such a bizarre thing uh, with the blackwood, although <laughs> we do have one ourselves, which I've been pruning back a little bit. <laughs> no, you've been there. I'll turn that into a swan. Uh, but, uh, yes, yeah, so just a uh, yeah, nice simple shape and, and um, just keeping the um, canopy dense. And, um, uh, anyway. to let them go to two and a half metres or...? Okay. Well, I, I, the, the tree itself, you, you just work with the, the growth habit of the whatever you're tackling and, and two and a half metres, well, you can easily, uh, that, that's fine. I mean, it, when you think about it, the uh, tapery work, it's, it's, it's what suits the, um, uh, the gardener, really. Um, for instance, we, we have a um, Japanese black pine, and, um, but it's a dwarf form called Pinus thumbergii yatsubusa. And uh, that's a kind of tree that you uh, – it's a, it's a tree that you'll see in the Japanese strolling garden. And they're grown in the ground, so they never use the bonsai this particular form. Uh, they're grown to about two metres high simply because that's a convenient height for the average person to reach and clip yeah. because you're clipping <laughs> yeah. this thing continuously yeah. because what you're trying to do is make it look as though it's about ten times its natural size. Now, the straight Pinus thumbergii does grow 15, 20, even 30 metres high. Um, 
But this one is quite readily available. It's a, it's a grafted pine, and, and, and hopefully you, you'll find it in your local nursery. Um, and we have one which we, we, we've we um, got up about two, two and a half metres, um, and we've been working on for the last 15 years or so. And it's simply what's convenient for the gardener in this case. Mm. Simple as that. Yeah. Uh, okay, so have a bit of a play, Hugh. Okay. Well, thanks very much, panel. Thank okay. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hugh can report back in eight years to see how <laughs> he's going. <laughs> that number, if you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155 to have a chat to Millie or to Jeremy. Or if you'd like to have a talk to Derek on the outside line, 94198377. Millie, you've been shopping again, Edna. I did. Look, I, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, you can't I, resist. I can't resist. I just, uh, you know, I kill, pl- I really do kill a lot of plants. I realise that, you know, I pick things up and drag them home and then don't find the time to, uh, to do it. But look, as I said, like, you know, I love living in the West. You and I talk about, you know, you, you know, Pam's a Bulldogs fan. So, you know, we, we talk about the West a bit. And, and it, I had such a great day yesterday of why it's great to live in the West. I woke up, I, all my woodworking tools are in my friend's shed at the moment because I don't have a shed. And I, I said, can I come over and do some woodworking? And she said, yeah, I'm going to this thing. Actually, she said, I'm going to the sewerage farm in Werribee. But yes, come over. And I, I put my hands on my hips and sort of said, I can't believe you're going to the sewerage farm without me because quite frankly, it is somewhere that I've always wanted to visit. It's this extraordinary thing. It changed Melbourne as a city and made it, you know, this very modern city really. Um, but apart from that, it's a, it's an internationally listed wetland for bird habitat, a Ramsar listed wetland. It's got an extraordinary amount of, you know, interesting vegetation there. And But anyway, I t- turned up to do my woodworking and the other person that was meant to go on this tour pulled out. So I got to go to the sewerage farm, which is, you know, not where I expected to end up. When I woke up. <laughs> and it was wonderful. You know, we had this great tour around the, um, it was part of the Way Out West Festival, which is happening at the moment. And so there was five artists ha- had put um, incredible artworks into this landscape. And the first one was a performance art of, um, you know, the, the there used to be a little settlement, a little town within um, within quite a, hus- you know, hustle and bustle little town in there um, called uh, Cockerock. And there was a football team. And so the first artwork was actually the football team were on the old football field and they, you know, ran into the, the rooms and slammed the door and you could hear them. You could hear the coach screaming at them about, you know, everyone else thinking they're a certain type of – well, there was the S word was used. Everyone thinks we're poo farm. <laughs> Come down here on the – but, you know, it was this wonderful experience and came back to, to – um, you know, after spending, you know, so it was five artworks put through, very different and um, really, really interesting. And I've never seen quite so many birds. I've never seen a pack of birds of prey like I saw hovering around. You know, you know there is an immense amount of nutrient yeah, <laughs> and, you know, water. Yeah, look, there's a lot happening down in a landscape like that. And so, you know, it was so fascinating. Came back to Footscray after this this great morning, really a surprise, and went and had lunch. And um, wandering the streets of Footscray, there's one particular corner where there's always, at least on a Saturday morning, there's always at least one person selling plants, but this time of the year there's at least five or six. Um, and there's often a f- few of the, the older ladies who who actually still sell a little bit of rice, you know, a little bit of little packaged food, very much like you would find on a street corner in Vietnam. And I, I love that the it's allowed still and that these women, I mean, I don't know if when the, you know, certain people roll past that they don't wheel their carts away. I've seen... <laughs> 
But, um, yeah, look, you pick up amazing plants there. And, you know, I love it. I, you know, there's one particular woman that we've actually had a few emails and we're almost at the point where she's going to let me come and look at her garden. <laughs> <laughs> this has been taking – it's taken me three years, you know, to this point where she saw me yesterday and went, how are you going? You know, I haven't seen you for ages. And uh, But there's always these interesting plants there. And, you know, I, I've got – here I've got – I bought three types of basil, you know, and you pay sort of five bucks for – for something like that. But that's five very, very strong, long Thai basil seedlings. And I reckon this is probably my favourite basil to grow. It's certainly the toughest basil I know. Um, it produces right into actually well past a lot of the others when oh, the yes. weather cools right off. It yep. um, grows really well from cuttings too. I could actually take cuttings of that now and strike them to, to go in so I've got a, a double crop. But, you know, really, I mean, you can get that plant at most nurseries, but I love getting it on, on the, you know, you get a fair bit of advice. Sometimes you get a little bit of a rousing out, you know, who knows what you get when you buy your plants. But the other things that I, I picked up are, you know, fantastic chilies. I used to in my in my last garden, Jeremy. I had a, a hedge of different types of chili that I grew over a period of four years, and so every year one or two would would die off in the winter. But mostly, I was able to keep um, keep them. You know, they'd overwinter, they'd almost fall to bits, and then you prune them back. And they were all grown from seed from Footscray markets. Wow. And so a lot of the varieties were that was the one the Indian man told me I had to get. That's the one. You know, like that was my <laughs> my name varieties. You know. Um, so, you know, I grabbed a great chilli. But, but the other things that you find, you know, I, I think I brought this in actually not long ago that I picked up some of this. So this is um, this is something that's often – do you know this plant? No. You know? So, all right, have it – give the leaf a rub and give it a, a smell. But this is a really great little herb. Again, a li- you can grow it from seed, but it's actually an eryngium, so it's a little thistle. And uh, it's known – uh, in cooking circles as sawtooth coriander or perennial coriander. So yeah, it has a flavour so the, that's almost identical yeah, to coriander. Yeah, coriander, but it's, but it's actually a thistle. It's a little perennial uh, form. It, I've found here, I mean, in the subtropics, that would seed quite readily in your garden in mm. Brisbane and, and would actually come up in thickets. In Melbourne, I find that really you just treat it as an annual. Mm. Um, but it is a, a wonderful little plant. It's quite an attractive little plant, and it does actually get a little eryngium, um, sort of a green little sort of flower on it. It's not particularly pretty, but it, it's an interesting plant, and you could use it, you know, in a combination pot with something in a, you know, great foliage. But I mean, that is uh, that you know, that's five bucks. There's six good plants in there at least, <laughs> grown in a grown in a takeaway container, oh, which yes. is <laughs> which is what I love. And you know. if yeah, anyone and has problems with with coriander going to seed early, it, that's the one. Well, to this go. is. Your summer coriander, and, yeah. and what I've found is um, because you know, coriander will not grow in a Melbourne summer, it's too That's hot. That's right, way too um, hot. This in a slightly shaded spot. Look at you, you're laughing, I'm, I'm, going as a nurseryman, uh, no, I do not it's approve. It, it's a, this is growing in an ice cream container, I'd say, and I was yep. just uh, curious at how they'd actually got some drainage holes in it, and obviously. Something rather hot sort of poked into the plastic. <laughs> <laughs> On the open flame. Oh, but good drainage. Yeah, yeah, it all, all works very nicely. <laughs> it, it is so much fun. And, you know, I used to buy plants off a woman, but she wouldn't, she couldn't, she didn't speak a lot of English and she, and her, 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 her younger offsider would said she just wouldn't want to talk to me. I used to try, but she used to get, get a uh, train with a pram full of plants from you know from the other side of Melbourne, from Box Hill or something, and actually catch the train to Footscray to sell her plants. But um, you know, there's just this great collection of people, and I think that's a pretty healthy looking. Yeah. yeah. You know, they are. That is a healthy looking plant. And um, the, another thing I, I picked up, which I, I have actually grown it from seed before, but I, you know, again, just having fun and wanting to spend a bit of money. You know, I'm I'm very guilty every time I go to. <laughs> speak at a country town gardening club of spending whatever they've paid me pretty much in the country town you know 
spread the spread the money back around. But this is um a really wonderful climbing melon. So there's a lot of great Asian melons. It's called yes. long melon. Um, it's Laganaria. I know sometimes I think they call it snake gourd or snake melon, but grows into a, a long sort of very elongated green sort of bean shape, you know, a big, big melon, but you can pick it quite young. Um, and a really, really vigorous plant. I know Sophie Thompson grew this in her summer garden last year over in Arbor, and um, she said it just generated heaps of interest, uh, uh, you know, A, but B was a really, really good vegetable as well if you pick them nice and young. Um, and so, you know, I picked up a, a nice little um, long bean. And then I'm standing... I, this young fella came over and he was looking at all the plants and he said, what's this to the lady? And I sort of turned my head and went, that's a persimmon. <laughs> and she said, yes, and looked at me. And I said, did you grow that from seed? And she said, yeah, I did. Um, she said, and, you know, she, she couldn't tell me anything more. I said, what do you reckon my chances are? And even she laughed. <laughs> I went, yeah, I don't know that it'll fruit, but it's worth trying. So I also managed to get myself a seed-grown persimmon for $7. I think that's pretty good, don't you reckon? <laughs> But anyway, I mean, I guess it's like plants are, you know, this, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I grew up in the retail nursery trade. I, I think you should all get down to the retail nursery. But certainly, you know, sticking your head into markets and you can pick up all sorts of funny little things that people grow for themselves more than anything. These are all plants that, you know, culturally, if you look around right here, you, there's a whole spread of plants that, um, you know, probably 20 years ago you couldn't get in a nursery, you know, Absolutely. easily. Absolutely. I always think... Uh, Go back to the well, fifteen years ago, the um, the um, National Gallery. Uh, the most one of the most beautiful trees I've ever seen was the persimmon growing in the courtyard, the central courtyard of the National Gallery. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's all been filled in, and and um, and the only hint of the persimmon now is the name of the cafe at the back of the National Gallery, which is called the persimmon. Oh, not and, as uh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so. I, I actually um, asked someone behind the counter, well, what actually happened to the persimmon tree? Because mm. obviously they'd have to – It was quite. It, I should describe it. It, it, it. I think it had been planted um, – it, it had already been a substantial tree when the gallery was originally built. So I think it was a, a fairly medium-sized tree that had been cut back. And um, so you had to imagine a, a, a um, trunk, uh, branches rising up about four or five metres, and then a canopy which seemed to form on top of, uh, it was growing at a, uh, with a different habit to the trunk. So I presume it had been moved as a substantial tree, and um, but the effect was just astonishing. Now, I saw that on lots of occasions, and, and, and of course, an old persimmon, the, the trunks go almost black, mm. and um, of course, the leaves, soft green during the summer. Well, they're related yeah, to they're ebony, un- aren't they? They're yeah, diosporous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A- absolutely diosporous. Car- what is it, khaki? Khaki, yeah. yeah, and um, the, the um, leaves in the autumn develop beautiful tonings, and they do that in very mild areas without any frost. It's one of the rare... Um, autumn colouring mm. trees uh, that uh, will colour up on the beach um, and then the fruit uh, form late summer and then hang on past the leaves so uh, I think the most spectacular time to see this this particular tree as it used to be was uh, early winter mm. and just the 
the black outline Oops. of the trunk and then the, the orange fruits mm, um, yeah. hanging all over the uh, canopy. It's just I know that, um, beyond belief. Graham Morrison used to bring, often when he had the nursery, would bring in uh, fruit from, I mean, I remember once and he stole my heart. He'd already stolen my heart, but the day brought me <laughs> ice cream and persimmons at 7.30 uh, in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, you are a, you're a man who knows how to win hearts. But um, I believe that was a seed-grown tree as well that had been grown by seed by his dad in the nursery and and it was a prolific fruiter. It had to be yes. blettered. Um, yep. So it was definitely so one, of, one the of the astringent varieties. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. but I, I mean, I think they're. I often, I've yet to go to Japan. That's you know high on my wish list in the next couple of years. And and I sort of go, oh, spring, autumn, spring, autumn. But apart from, I really feel like I would like to go at that time because I have this deep love of persimmon. That I think that would be the time that I'd actually like to go, so that I can see these trees just in in full glory. And and really, there isn't anything quite like it. I know where there's a few trees around Melbourne that people seem not to harvest the fruit at all. And um, you know, I've always got one eyeball on the side of the road for a tree, you know, that's going going you know to waste really. Yep. But um, there's nothing quite like them, is there? When that you know the purples and the oranges of the foliage fall, and you've got this incredible just luminescent. Tree mm. full of so I, look. To be honest, I, I would be very happy to grow this. I'll probably pot it into a, a you know. I spoke at the Friends of Cranbourne Botanic Gardens um, AGM last weekend, and as as they did the last time I spoke to them years and years and years ago, they gave me the best gift. I got two big. Co- I got a big copper and a copper jam pan <laughs> as my thank you presents. They know me too well. They do. Thank you, Alex. Uh, but uh, you know, I'll probably pot it into a pot. I, I'm not too fussed whether it fruits or not because I. I know I'm going to get this beautiful foliage. Yeah, you know, get fantastic. And, um, yeah, and and also just just love that you know a woman on on the streets of Footscray had grown it from seed and yeah, and, and they, they, they I've seen the grown its bonsai, so they'll obviously tolerate yes. uh, pot conditions <laughs> indefinitely. Yeah, tolerate neglect at Millie's. Do you yeah. know if it's an astringent <laughs> or a non-astringent? Well, actually, didn't I? I sort of asked her that. She spoke pretty good English, actually, much better than my Vietnamese. But um, <laughs> she uh, she I said, is it the you you know, was it the sweet one, the vanilla one? And she said, oh, we both – I have noticed and I, I have to really think about this because I often save pips from fruit when I'm eating it and you don't often get seeds in the, um, in the Fuyu, the vanilla persimmons, I, I think, as an eater. Mm. Um, but I have had a few – um, quite large seeds in in the odd one, so I, I really don't know. We'll, okay. we'll find out. Yes, we will. <laughs> if it fruits, yeah. I'll, I'll report back with you Absolutely. in twenty four years. <laughs> well, mark it in your diary. I think there's quite a lot to be said for astringent fruit as well. You just got to know I how to it. use them, and, and yeah. uh, um, well, we we have the. Um, so-called um, Chinese apricot growing, the, the, the uh, pendulous form, uh, Prunus mume pendula. And that, uh, well, to, for the average person, as they see it fruiting, it, it's an apricot. And uh, they pull the fruit off and take a mouthful and, ooh, oh, crikey, what on earth? <laughs> uh, and uh, the Prunus mume is uh, Chinese apricots. They're not, they, they sort of sit between the apricots and the plums, apparently, um, in the Prunus um, group, um, and uh, very astringent. We had a border collie, and uh, and uh, the, our our tree would uh, drop fruit all over the place, and he would eat 
two, maybe three, and that would stop him. If it had been a true apricot, he would have had a uh, yes. stepladder out and, and would have been, been a, up into the branches. In a laboratory, he would have kept eating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but they are – it's a – one of the most beautiful trees you can grow in the garden. Again, a bit, a bit like the persimmon. Mm. Uh, uh, winter flowering, the flowering season is incredible. Ours was flowering from uh, last few days of May, wow. uh, which is pretty amazing for a prudus. But it started flowering in May and was still flowering in a week or two into August. So straight Thank through heavens. winter. And does it flower like did because it's got that incredible habit, really, hasn't it? Of yeah, weeping. it flowers it's from true... the inside to the out, and 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 uh, and it's quite vigorous, and and um, sends up uh, branches which shoot out of the centre of the tree and then arch right out. So it actually is a very um, natural looking weeper, not mm. one of these lolly, <laughs> not yes. one of these uh, uh, mop top trees. Um, it's and got a the, really and, and, wonderful flow, yeah, hasn't it? And, and the cool. flowers are heavily perfumed. Mm-hmm. And um, the perfume, uh, a big tree with a few flowers open, uh, a few hundred flowers open, uh, will, the, will throw the perfume for hundreds of metres mm. um, with a bit of breeze. It's just an extraordinary thing. Do the fruit then, ever then, become palatable or are they always astringent? Well, I... Um, they are amazing. They look so much like apricots and you crush them in, in your hand and they smell like apricots. But to taste them, they are pretty astringent. Now, they can be used. They are used for culinary purposes, but mm-hmm. uh, made in condiments generally and, and um, liqueurs and that sort so of thing. So you'd have to let them almost yeah. bless. So, so they have to be used in some sort of recipe. They, they can't be eaten straight off the tree, really. Yes. But uh, keeping that in mind... Uh, they're used in all sorts of ways in in Central Asia, from uh, Western China through to India and Indian cuisine. Uh, the the prunus mumes, mm. well, the the so-called plum sauce uh, in a oh. in their restaurant is made from prunus mumay fruit. Wow, mm. I wonder because that astringence, like with a persimmon, you know, you really let it just get nice and soft, and it gets sweeter. You know, you know that. But I know with medlars, I I found a roadside. We found some roadkill medlar. Uh, a few years ago in, in Williamstown, would you believe? So sort of driving, you know, where you just sort of clock in a public park, which has just got ornamental pears, as you'd expect, uh, and one meddler. <laughs> just right. think, what are you okay. doing there? So we pulled over and grabbed a holo, and I let them blet, but even, and then I turned them into jelly, but I did not let them blet long enough, and that jelly even had an astringence to it, which yes. made it, you know, which made it sort of pretty inedible. No, they've really got to blet well. And, yeah. you know, astringency, you, it's, you can't cover it up with sugar, can no. you? No. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's an interesting thing to work with in uh, yeah. cooking. Yeah, oh. yeah. You are tuned to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. In the studio this morning we have Millie Ross and also Jeremy Francis. If you'd like to join us, we're running through until 9.15. If you have a gardening question, do give us a call. The number is 94190155 to speak to the team on air or to have a chat to Derek on the outside line Nine four one nine eight three double seven. Plans for ABC Gardening Australia next year? Is it going to be same format? Um, yeah. 
It's the weekend, Pam. I always ask me about Gardening Australia. It's my weekend. Um, <laughs> I'm not at work. Yeah, look, um, we're we're just we've just so the last episode went to air. I think la- last not, Sunday, yeah, last weekend, last Saturday, and yeah. um, and we're back on air. I think the 12th of March next year. So, okay. um, yeah, look, we're, we've been filming flat out everyone around the country. You know, we try and film a, as many gardens as we can at this time of the year. I know last year I think we turned up at Jeremy's place and and did a lot of plant profiles and those sorts of things just to because we film such a large proportion of the program in winter um, as is just the production schedule and all of those things and the way budgets run um, we, we try and do as much as we can through this period of time but look we had it we've had great fun over the last few weeks we filmed um, the wonderful Simon Griffiths the photographer who people would be familiar with he's got a gorgeous garden and I, I went to see him last year actually and and so we filmed his garden which will come up at some sometime through the year okay um, we filmed some great historic gardens in uh, in Adelaide a really wonderful garden Beaumont House which has been rebuilt um, or the garden has been rebuilt. I'm trying to think what else we filmed. Um, just lots of great stuff, actually. And um, and actually, tell you what, we have filmed and, and Costa filmed um, with the wonderful Ben Swain. So people would be really familiar with the Swain family with roses and, yes. and their nursery and. Um, and Ben was gorgeous, and 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 people probably in Sydney ABC listeners. Um, Elizabeth Swain now does the talk back often. His daughter, and and probably a lot of gardeners would be familiar with Elizabeth as well. She works for Yates and has written for Burke's Backyard and and many many magazines. So, um, and he uh, he he and Costa are good mates, and you know, so we sent him down, and you know, he was quite a he's a humble he's a humble old thing, but um, their garden was right next door to their big nursery, and and there were so many plants. He said, it's it's not a garden like most people would like. It's a nurseryman's garden. And I said, what does that mean? He says, well, it's stock plants. <laughs> you know, like, so uh, this, 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 this great garden and, you know, some plants that, um, you know, they had imported, you know, 50, 40 years back to actually propagate from. And um, so that'll be a really lovely story too. Mm. And, yeah, look, you know, people are hungry for gardening. Um, there's no doubt about it. And they're hungry for, you know, we, we try and do that whole balance and we're always debating it about, you know, the balance between that aspirational, inspirational and practical, you know, giving giving everyone just a little something. And, you know, it's something as a viewer before I worked for Gardening Australia that I always felt that if I watched that program, there'd be something there. You know, there'd be a lot of stuff there that I already knew. There'd be a lot of stuff I didn't really wasn't really interested in, but there was always one idea, you know. Or and it's the same when you go to people's gardens, you know. It doesn't matter what garden it is. There's always just something that you see someone has done that that spurs on your own thoughts. And so I guess we're just again just striving for that all the time to make sure that we've got nuts and bolts for people, and you know maybe some careful wood turning over here and you know just really a diverse range of of stories and and on our very limited budget we do cop it a bit that we don't go to the regions enough and you know people ring us and rouse at us why can't you you never go and it's like well we don't have any money (laughs) (laughs) to be very very frank right to your prime minister (laughs) don't ring us we would you know as researchers james and crystal and i have just had this pile of regional stuff we're ready to go anytime you say we've got four days in a region where do you want to go? We uh, we'll be fighting over the the stories that we've had sitting sitting waiting there. But uh. um, you know it is a difficult thing for we did the ABC did send out a roadshow to Toowoomba, so playing with that um, that regional you know the, as a broadcaster you know everyone we're there we're here to represent everyone and um, so they have we have filmed a garden in Toowoomba as well. So they sent Q and A up there. They sent. Uh, 
they said, we've got all these outside broadcast vans that aren't doing anything, so why don't we do something? So, you know, maybe there'll be a bit more of that next year that as well. That would be good if, if that could happen, actually. I think yeah. that's really, yes, I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing the money thing with my fingers, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the organisation would love to do more of it. But, um, oh. yeah, but look, gardening is... You know, gardening is new and old all at the same time, isn't it? Like, yeah. and I guess I had this one of the other great things I did um, at Garden Marlborough, which, which was the first time they'd done it. Actually, was they had uh, a couple of um, Maori uh, medicine plant specialists hold a oh, workshop. So I went out with yeah Rob McGowan, who works with um, the Department of Conservation there, pretty much touring around the country, meeting different people who were doing different things, and um, Donna Kerridge, and it, it was really wonderful. You know, like to get out of that habit of, you know, getting on a bus with a bunch of people that are pretty similar to you. And this bus, we the bus was late, so we stood on the street and practised um, some songs. And, uh, you know, because we had to do a formal sort of welcome when we got to the um, got to the, the area that we were going to walk around and look at the plants. And, and um, you know, it was just such a, a, a you know, a, another way to see plants that you, you know, I'm pretty interested in cultural use of plants and and particularly in this country you know I think it's the exciting thing and Jeremy and I have talked about this a little bit um, over the last couple of years just talking about really this exciting whole wealth of knowledge that we have in our you know indigenous culture in this country and you know getting proud of it and getting excited about it and getting starting to learn it and there was this beautiful moment when we we got got to this place and the, the welcome took over an hour everyone had to introduce themselves which was a beautiful thing um you know why are you here and I said, well, my name's Millie, I've come from Australia and, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find a cure to plant blindness <laughs> and, uh, and I think this helps and, you know, we all had a good chuckle. But uh, everyone went through, you know, all these young Maori folk who were there to learn from there. You know, there were people who were genuinely there because they wanted to learn about these plants and, and it got right round and, and the fellow who was sort of looking after, he said, look, the most important person hasn't introduced himself. And everyone sort of thought, no, everyone's introduced. He said, the bus driver, you know, he got us here. And he was, you know, he was a, you know, 65-year-old Kiwi guy and he sort of struggled to his feet and, you know, he sort of thought, what's this guy going to think of this? You know, it's a really, it's quite an in-depth cultural experience. It's not everyone, you know, not everyone can easily just start to, you know, be comfortable in these situations. And he said, um, you know, I'm, you know, I'm been, been, been living in New Zealand, obviously, for nearly 70 years and... Um, I was sitting, came and sat here, and the sandflies started, uh, as they always do, just attacking my legs. And and this young lady just stood up and pulled a leaf off that tree that I'm sitting under, gave it to me. I rubbed it on my legs, and I've watched the sandflies fly away. He said, "I couldn't tell you how many thousands of dollars of chemicals I've sprayed on my body over <laughs> so many years, and all this time, this plant was right there. Wow. And it was it was a myoporum. It's actually yeah. a boobiella um, that uh, that they use as just an insect repellent, you know. And um, you know, just so there's so much to learn about plants, yeah. and you never stop learning. And that right. was the thing. It's intriguing, isn't it? Uh, the the, the Maoris have been in uh, New Zealand what, for a well, 800 years. 800 years. Not that long. Not that Not long. Not that long. Gee, uh, back in the, oh, how many years ago? Before New Zealand flax became the the, the bugbear, I think, <laughs> on Gee, the I nursery like, tray. It's nice but to I, see I, it in habitat, I, isn't I, it? I had a, I had, I've always had an interest in ornamental grasses, and that flows into things like New Zealand flax. I've, I've sort of given up on New Zealand <laughs> flax in recent years, sadly, but... But uh, back in the eighties, nineteen eighties, I actually sent off to a, 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 for a, a book on New Zealand flaxes because I'd, I'd, I'd been travelling around New Zealand and seen some amazing things. So, a, a flax called Bobby Dazzler, and 
uh, you know, incredible things. So, so, you know, so I thought I'd, right, I'd get a list of all these flaxes. What I was sent was a book with about one page of uh, modern, high, uh, modern selections yes. and about 70 pages of Maori selections. And every Maori tribe through the North and South Island had their plants, had their plants mm. of New Zealand flax, and each tribe had about 15, 20 of them. Mm. And they've been selecting those flaxes for different uses. For, for Well, they, they wove them into um, clothing. Uh, they wove them into fishing lines, into... Um, billy bags, so any anything you can think of, the they had a they had a particular flax mm. for that purpose, and they grew them next to their villages, and that was true right throughout New Zealand. And there were just page after page after page of them. It was just amazing. Do you still have this book? And can I look at it next time I come to visit? <laughs> You'll have to dig it out. <laughs> it's, it's well, actually buried now. So, yeah. but but I just remember reading it with my mouth open. Now, of course, the you know, the Maoris have been in New Zealand for eight hundred years. <laughs> The, the people in Australia have been here for... 75,000? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. they have had 10, 20 times as long to come to grips with the uh, flora in Australia. Mm. And uh, just, well, what they knew and what's been lost is doesn't bear thinking about. It's, uh, it's, but it's on... But, it, yeah, you can only extrapolate. Yeah, and absolutely. And I, I just think for me personally, because I, I just love to learn and to think about something new. You know, I, I, um, I, I had the pleasure of chatting to a beekeeper the other day who told me that different trees can make bees aggressive or not aggressive. Um, you know, he said, I think it was yellow box. It wasn't yellow box, but if they're on stringy bark, they can be quite aggressive if they're on stringy bark. And I okay. just thought, I didn't know that. And now I'm obsessed with it. <laughs> you know, and that's kind of how I feel about new bits of information. And I feel that way about... Aboriginal or you know Indigenous plant use, I, I feel like there is this 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 just absolute wealth of fascinating fascinating information mm. that we are yet to even really get our hands on, get to groups with, start to ask the questions and feel like we can ask the questions. I know even uh, speaking to an, a native grass specialist recently who's been breeding Australian grasses for 20 years, he's, he's got a, a fantastic weeping grass that produces a really big grain, almost the size of a rice rice wow. grain. And, um, you know, it's not a commercial thing yet. Maybe it's never going to be a viable crop. But, you know, it is something that you think... Why aren't we? Why aren't we investigating this more? Or why aren't we? You know, we. I guess we are starting to. Is is my yeah. my my thought would be that there are a lot of very interested people, hopefully um, tracking down those really knowledgeable people and 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 really celebrating their knowledge and thanking them for it. Because as you say, there's thousands and thousands of generations of decision making in in yeah. a plant. You know, when you look at a, a persimmon or an apple. You know, there's thousands of years of decisions there, oh, yes. and that's been happening in this country too. Well, one of the uh, things that got right in the uh, that television series, The Secret River, the um, um, it was on a little while back. Um, um, was the um, uh, was the, 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 that was the area based around the area around the Hawkesbury and um, a little clearing in the um, in the forest um, that the uh, the whites spot and thought right well clearing that's an obvious space to build a house and build a plant a garden and and there was just this strange plant growing in the middle of it and they they kind of ignored it but the because the aboriginals that had been their garden and had been their garden for thousands of years mm. and there were clearings like that everywhere uh, for all sorts of purposes and just thinking of grasses i mean so much of the aboriginal culture revolved around cultivating grasses 
um, especially kangaroo grass. Mm. We've actually planted a little bit of blue kangaroo grass just as a, <laughs> oh, well, as a, a, well, as a talking point, I suppose, uh, just ne- next, just below the um, digger's shop and just to see how it goes and, and, and just see how we can use it. Mm. Um, it's a lovely thing. Many seasons in grasses. I mm. think that's, a, you know, people think it's like this permanence, but there's so many seasons yeah. in, a, in a plant if you're willing to look and willing to experience and, you know, actually, I, you know, I think some, there's something about, you know, I had this wonderful walk on Arthur's Pass between, you know, so when you're travelling from the east to the west coast on the South Island and it's the highest pass and, you know, 175 millimetres of rain fell that day and at least 100 millimetres fell on me. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I mean, that forest is, it's wet beach forest, you know. It's meant to be dripping and it's yes. dripping with other plants, you know. Absolutely everything is covered in, you know, mosses, lichens, liverworts, you know, it's plant on plant on plant on plant. And I, I walked up and then came up onto the snowgrass plains, which to me were really similar to places I've been in Tasmania, in those alpine areas. But, um, you know, a, a mass of grass on a wet day, a wet windy day, I mean, I couldn't make that in a garden. You know, I couldn't make a place feel like that if I tried. But it's just, you know, they they kind of experience weather, I think, grasses in a way that other plants, not a lot of other plants can sort of tell you what the weather's doing if you're sort of standing and looking out at the, the door. But I just think they can be used in such wonderful ways if you've got space, I suppose. But. Well, we do have two or three areas yeah. which we devote to grasses and just whatever comes up and whatever comes up through them. And, and really, they're, they're areas which we've not worked on at all. We've simply incorporated what we found on the property into the garden. Mm. And um, uh, generally, they're full of bulbs in the spring, but in the summer, well, half a dozen different species of grass. And one of the more obvious is Yorkshire fog, which is uh, interloper and and uh, really a weed. But, Quite a pretty but, interloper. Yeah, but, but it's a lovely <laughs> thing. A holcus, uh, what is it? Holcus mollus, I think. Um, and uh, it a, has a greyish um, um, leaf, um, blue-grey leaf, and, uh, and uh, mauve lavender flowers and comes up and... But it runs. <laughs> and you wouldn't plant it in a normal garden, but in an area of rough grass, it is absolutely stunning, especially with a few other weeds coming through it, like Alstromeria, mm. um, orange Alstromeria. Just uh, going back to what you were saying um, uh, a little while back, Millie, on, uh, on different styles of gardens around Australia and what happens in um, away from the cities, uh, um, well, I, I, I was, uh, lived you know, half my life in Western Australia on a farm, and our next door neighbours were station people. I had a station at Mekathara, um, um, a place called Yala Wheeler. And uh, in fact, um, the, um, um, Shirley uh, was born on Mount Augustus. And for anyone who doesn't know Mount Augustus, it, it's actually a, a monolith much bigger than Ayers Rock, than Uluru. Um, and um, so she um, lived on that station. Ross lived on the, a station there in Meekathara. Uh, both interesting people. They both spoke the uh, local language or the uh, local community. So we're going back to the 50s and 60s here. Uh, but their garden, now I never saw their garden, but I got to know them pretty well and I spent a lot of time with them. And, and um, um, it was... Um, it was a typical station vegetable garden at a time when people only got to town once every 
six, eight weeks, mm. ten weeks or so. And so you had to have a serious vegetable garden. But they were growing this in an incredibly hot part of Australia. And it's the closest thing we have to the Middle East, I suppose. Mm. Very hot, very dry. Uh, they had three windmills around their garden. And one was for stock and one was for the house and the... the um, and and the garden and the third one was for what they call their bush house, which uh, so there was one windmill which did nothing but pump water up to um, uh, onto a tank stand, a fairly elevated tank stand, and underneath the tank was this substantial area uh, room, if you like, of um, surrounded by mesh and and then plants. And when it really got hot, and it stayed hot for about six months of the year yeah, <laughs> in that part of the world. When it, you mean there's that's a time when it isn't hot, yeah. and then there's just normal time. Well, yeah, well, six, eight months <laughs> yeah. of the year. They would actually start work at four o'clock in the morning, and they'd finish work by lunchtime because yep. it, it was dangerously hot in the afternoon. It was into the 40s every day. Mm. And everyone would retreat not to the house but to the bush house. And uh, they'd sort of trickle water down through this mesh of plants and every plant you could imagine. And um, so wow. they lived inside this, this cool room, which is like a giant Coolgardie safe made up of, of a, a big tank stand, but uh, plants and water trickling down through the walls. And they'd sleep for the afternoon. And <laughs> if, if it cooled down enough, they might do another hour or two just before sunset. Wow. But uh, but that's how they lived their life for months at a time in that part of the world, and that was before um, well um, um, before green electricity. Walls and, yeah, green before walls ele- and roofs too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now it was just it was something that the very early people when they arrived in that part of the world they they quickly discovered that was the only way you could survive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was just, and of course nowadays well it's it's all vanishing because people have air conditioning. Yes, which, you know, does so yeah. much for the... <laughs> well, I you mean, can it's, imagine, it's crazy, really. You know, doing those sorts of things. I'm uh, my friend Louise Costa, who's, whose garden is actually in Angus's new book. Yes. I meant to, and um, so people will have heard me talk about Lou, and I know we've interviewed her about her great garden in Rushworth in, in Central Vic. I remember her telling me uh, about this drip that she found in the bush of this particular bit of piping. So it was irrigation piping or something. It was, you know, the municipal pipe. And there was this one spot that had a drip and she discovered it when she was having a bushwalk one day and and it was obviously it was permanent water and she said you've never seen anything like this drip in the bush you know it's a really really dry part of victoria um in summer you know 40 plus that you know yeah. everything goes to sleep you know box iron bark you know there's very little else on the ground that are actually active and she said i used to go to this drip because i could sit there and watch it Birds, bees, you know, everyone came to this drip. And then at some point, someone discovered this leaky pipe and fixed it. Oh. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like, she, there was this tragic thing, you know, that, that you know, this little bit of infrastructure that was, uh, was, was, was not operating fully, um, you know, provided this, this opportunity. And, and it just always keeps me... You know, thinking about you know building habitat and creating spaces yeah. in your garden. If you can, and, and, and the you, way that people form yeah. hybrid habitats, and the, and you going back to what you were saying first thing this morning about uh, Werribee, the uh, you know, that extraordinary, extraordinary. Uh, ecosystem, which is what goes back what to the first days of Melbourne when the, with the um, septic. Probably system. got I mean, a date somewhere here. Yeah. I could look it up. Yeah, but it did. Uh, and and of course, there's uh, and and over the last what hundred years or so, no doubt there's. Uh, 
that we have a situation where there's uh, tens, hundreds of thousands of birds, migratory birds, which depend on the Werribee um, sewage farm carrying on and doing what it's been doing. For... It, I did have that thought as I was looking at the aeration ponds with my um, scratch yeah. and sniff So, so we, we but... have, to, have to think, I mean, if another technology comes along to treat sewage, we have to think... Uh, Should we we introduce this or should we be carrying on for the sake of the birds? I thought about that exact thing and and about water, you know. So, you know, we all Mm. know how absurd it is that we use potable water to, you know, a litre of it to push away 100 grams of of stuff, you know. But that amount of water going into the system, that is why there is, you know, this extraordinary habitat there. And um, as I said, you know, watching 20 birds of prey circling together, I mean, it was fabulous, you know. You just sort of think (laughs) (laughs) it was uh, quite an extraordinary sight. But, um, no, you're right, you do need to think about those things all the time. It's a really, really interesting thing. And, you know, some people... What is the relationship between people and nature? I, um, you know, the, some people sort of draw, separate the two. But I, mm. I, well, I've, I was farming, so I, and 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 farmers are well. I have to work with nature on a. Yeah, it's a long, complicated philosophical yeah. topic. Yeah. But but I, what made me think about it recently was, uh, that in fact, travelling through France, and then I spent a little bit of time with my uh, sister, who's one of these fortunate people who has a, uh, an old farmhouse that she's done up in the south of France as a retirement hobby uh, in the mountains north of Nice, and it's an amazing part of the world, and it's a little pocket which is kind of sheltered, <laughs> sheltered. Shelter from armies that happen to be marching mm. past. It's a little valley which is hidden away, and it's just full of villages. And the villages uh, all sitting on uh, 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 have defensive walls, and they're right at the tops of ridges with um, churches in the middle, which are actually forts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and there's not much soil to cultivate, but it had a huge number of people living in this uh, valley for. Practical thousands, reasons. Thousands yep. of years. There was a big valley next door, which was uh, over the ridge, which was very open, but it was it was not a, actually a very good spot to live mm. because, um, well, it was a thoroughfare for armies. Um, so this Rochestron Valley, uh, valley is, it was actually a much more interesting valley. And what struck me about it was that uh, the, the, the people who created gardens, terraces from right across the landscape, wherever the, slope was, uh, the soil was okay for a terrace, there, there would be a terrace. Mm. And uh, and people were walking kilometres in order to visit their gardens and, and, and feed themselves. There was a lot of people living there. Mm. And they've, they've been living there for thousands of years. And the whole ecology had become a hybrid ecology with the people actually creating this this landscape which which the wildlife well, it's very we're taking advantage of and 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 I've, I've been reading a bit of research into these these landscapes there's lots of them around the mediterranean mm. very ancient landscapes which are man made and, and many of them are actually much more biodiverse than Natural well, landscapes most, there, I say. Most cities are biodiversity yeah. hotspots. We think yeah. of them as being actually yeah. quite, you know, um, quite devoid of, of nature. But but they really are, you know, because we have this, 
huge abundance of, you know, plant variety. I mean, there's so many different plant species that people grow in their own gardens. There's, you water them and cultivate them. You know, you cultivate your soil, you mulch your soil, you do all of these things that sort of start to, you know, really, um, you know, create biodiversity. And, and I know that, you know, one of the things, yeah, I, it was funny actually I doing this interview about, about bees with this gentleman who's written a bee book because I have some mixed feelings about European honeybees. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I aren't, and they're kind of the buzz thing now everyone wants to keep bees and I, I get that I love honey and no bees is really problematic for our entire food system I understand all of that but I also have seen them in the bush wild you know yeah. feral getting into yep. into so like I have this very mixed mixed feelings about it but um you know one of the things I I did a few years ago when I knew it was a really hot summer was I actually put in water for bees um, and I, you know, like as well as needing nectar and pollen, they need water. Mm. And often they, uh, beekeepers, uh, you know, are reading his book uh, and it's a really great practical guide actually, Robert Owen's Guide to, to Keeping Bees if you're interested. It's it's just straight down the line, you know. I loved his intro. He says, don't be dogmatic. Everyone's going to tell you what to do and how you should be doing it. <laughs> just remember there's lots to learn and, you know, which I, you know, I have a similar approach to gardening I suppose. But, you know, you always have to put water out or they'll end up in your neighbour's pool and then you're going to have trouble. <laughs> <laughs> you know, <laughs> because they need water. But it was a really simple thing. I just had a little water pot um, and then I ran a piece of hessian up, you know, on a, on a bit of baling yeah. twine up into a tree so the bees could actually land on the hessian, which would be moist, have a drink and take off. And, you know, it was just something that I hadn't really thought about. I've, you know, I've done bird bars. I've done low bird bars, lizard bars, you know, all these things. But actually um, thinking that, that these animals – and this will happen this summer. The more water you can be putting out – we have, a you know, we had a 30 – however degree day the other day um you know as soon as that hot weather hits i start thinking gee that's going to be hard work for the possums you know and that's going to be hard work for a lot of the wildlife who are certainly not used to hot hot weather at this time so yeah yeah, getting getting some water out i think is one of the simplest ways you can get a bit a bit more biodiversity in your garden and and you know i often talk about when i give presentations i show pictures of this garden i built in footscray and one of the first things i did was stick a dead branch in the ground to show my friend where we were going to plant this tree i'm like that's where it's going to go and we left it in and um and you know it stayed for a long time it was beautiful eucalypt branch people go oh what's that that's so beautiful but the point i always make is i show Show this image of this stick in the ground before we put one plant in the ground. In West Footscray, it was a really, you know, there's not a lot of big trees out there at all. And um, before we'd put a plant in the ground, we had birds visiting that pond because we had a dead tree in the ground. <laughs> and they could land on the dead yep. tree, go, yep. what, is this safe? And then straight down. So we left it in, planted around it. And, um, you know, enormous amount of bird species, bloody cockatoos, <laughs> you know, flying down, landing on the dead branch and then in, ending up in the pond. So it was just um, such a lesson learned that it's, it's, yes. it's sometimes it's not – it's not just the planting, which sometimes can take time. There's all those other little components that you can incorporate into a garden that provide a, a little bit of a you know respite from our stu- our crazy world that we've created. Yeah, and so, and certainly, uh, well, I was farming and uh, and in a two hours drive from a city, and yet the only bees I ever saw were honeybees. So they yeah. were right through the bush, and they'd taken over from all the native bees. Yeah. Mm. And there were hundreds of native bees. One of the interesting things about the Dandenongs is uh, you can easily see native bees so they're, yes. they're, they're they're sort of active much more earlier than mm. the honeybees blue banded bees you'd yeah. get a lot of those oh, yeah all, all sorts and, yeah. and it's very exciting in fact the honeybees are, well they are having problems at the moment and we I don't mm. see so many of them uh, I feel a bit sorry for the honeybees but but it's great to see all the native bees yeah. and so, so somehow that 
that relationship between the uh, the original um, ecologies is, is is it's kind of melding quite nicely. I feel. Yeah, maybe, maybe. I think that that conversation about the uh, the celeb- the honeybee versus the is yeah, one that no one's it's, got. It's no not, one knows to how yeah, to have well, it. Well, I'm sure that the native uh, the honeybees taking over from native bees has, has upset so many re- uh, delicate mm. relationships in the in the flora. And I, I just started yeah. to think. In, I mean, Tasmania with the bumblebee, mm. they've they've actually proven that that was two queens genetically that were introduced. They know that two two queens were introduced, so it was very intentional. But because uh, mm. they're great buzz pollinators, but they literally rip open flowers that they're too fat to get into, yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, and take the nectar that way. So the yeah. little native bee turns up, and yeah. someone's ripped a hole in it and and yeah, already so taken it. So yeah. look, it is look. They're all great, and I I do love honey, so I should should shut my mouth on this one. <laughs> but I'm interested in it as a conversation. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Millie, you've got a couple of questions to ask. Firstly, uh, a listener wants the name of the book that you use, yes. Variation Derivation of Botanical Names. I can't. I Look, to be honest, I'll, I'll, I'll take it on notice, Pam, and I'll try and email you the exact title. But okay. for many, many years I've had a little black book called Plant Names Simplified that I picked up when I was studying horticulture. Um, and that was, you know, had mostly, um, you know, your Latin and Greek derivations of, of names. But there was a new book I picked up that I think is just called Botanical Latin for Garden. Gardeners or something like that. It okay. was um, it was an English book, and yeah, it was. It's a ripper little book, and it's got. I'll um, I'll send it through to you. When oh, right. I, uh, Stern, or there's more than one, I know, but Stern it, wrote it one. It was quite new, and I just grabbed it, and I did bring it in because I thought it was really well written mm. because it actually went, you know, colour. Habit, you know, it right. actually broke it down for people in that way. But I just had a quick Google, and I can't. Could be called Latin for gardeners, maybe. But, um, look, I can't remember, so I'll actually I'll put my okay. eyes... Actually, I reckon it is Latin for gardeners, but I will... Um, I'll, I'll send that through to you, Pam, and maybe okay. you can um, hit people up with that. With, with a bit of luck with the author and the publisher yeah, as well. Yeah, absolutely. I'll send yeah. you the full details. Fantastic. Now, the basil plant. The basil. So, look, this is, um, this is what I think is most commonly sold as Thai basil. Um, so I'd have to look at it. It's um, on, on, on sitem... Something or other. Mm. <laughs> I'd have to check. Look, I don't know what the species is, but it's it's just Thai basil. So um, it's got a, sort of a um, a more fleshy, almost like a more mint-like elongated leaf. Yes. And um, it gets a, a, a really good um, sort of purple to the new growth. And the stems often end up quite purple as well. There's a little bit of colour in the tips and the yeah. growing yeah. tips. Otherwise, and the flower soft spike green. is also purple. But, it, it, yeah. it, it, yeah. but I imagine there's a... Uh, Growing in the garden, it'd be quite ornamental. As Very well. beautiful, yes. and mm. um, and yeah, and I mean, again, you're talking about habitat and great plants for actually bringing, um, bringing the the, the bees. Um, as a member of the mint family, the Lamiaceae, the basils are fantastic plants for bringing in um, lots of pollinating insects. So, and this actually, um, sort of contrary to uh, sweet basils, this you can let it flower a little bit more, I think, and still be harvesting a lot of leaves. Yes, you can. Um, whereas with with most of your other basils, I would tend to um, to to you know pick flowers off certainly in the earlier part of the year, but um, no, it's a it's a it's a really it's a bit more of a fleshy sort of plant. It's got a bit of an aniseed sort of flavour to it. But um, in in Thailand, you'll end up that you know probably the best dish that I do with this, and it's it's straight from that songbook is um, chili and basil, mm. and so just heaps of chili, heaps of basil. Um, you know, I often use sweet potato leaves for a stir fry, and it's just um, to die for as a as a flavour co- flavour mm. combination. A lot of garlic, but mm. I would say the other basil that I would be seeking out at the moment that's still um, not too late to sow from seed is the lettuce leaf basil. 
Of all the plants I grow in my veggie patch year after year, um, that's the thing people just cannot believe they're looking at. So it has a leaf on it that can be anywhere up to about 10, 10 centimetres long um, by, you know, six or seven wide. It's, it's a humongous leaf and it's a big uh, uh, crinkled leaf um, and it's, you almost could roll a whole ball, ball of bocconcini in this, in this huge <laughs> leaf. Um, but it's, it's a really lovely basil. It's a really um, lovely, vigorous plant um, and, and looks fantastic again in the ornamental garden and you'll find seed of that I know many of the seed companies now carry it or if you stick your head into an Italian grocer and run your eyes around um, some of those Italian packets. you yes. definitely get uh, yep. get it in Zorzi seeds and, and it's some perfect for pesto it is such a because good plant because you've got such a big leaf fleshy leaf to oh, it oh less mucking around pulling the yes, bloody absolutely. leaves off the <laughs> oh, getting pesto yes I've, I've, I've had a plant of the Thai basil last right through the autumn yeah, right it, through the autumn. In the end, I pulled it out. In a warm spot or in a pot, if you had a glass house, you could probably slam it in the glass house. And I reckon you, it would overwinter. It. There certainly would, yeah. are a few perennial basils, and I think this one's in the middle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. We've run out of time. Um, for listeners who want to get all the details of uh, Shakespeare in the Garden, Jeremy, go to the uh, website. Yeah, go, go to Cloud Hill website. Uh, all sorts happening at Cloud Hill. We're um, doing a VIP uh, Diggers Members uh, weekend uh, next weekend and uh, workshops on the uh, December the 5th uh, on uh, composting and chooks. Excellent. So check the Diggers website. Check our website. Absolutely. Millie, good to see you. Great to see you. Happy Christmas if I don't see you before then. I'm not sure. No, no, I don't think you'll be in again until the new <laughs> you year. You never know, I might so. turn up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but of course uh, we'll be back again next week at 7.30. Until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.